How can consumerism, health, and well-being transform your client's culture, lower insurance costs, and provide a richer member experience? We'll find out on part two of this two-part episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of Shift Shapers is brought to you by Benazon Healthcare Advocacy. Your clients and their employees expect more service, more responsiveness, and more help than ever before. You need to focus on building your book. How do you do both? Benazon. To learn more, go to benazon.com or click the Benazon logo at the top of the shiftshapersonline.com page. You know, my very first client in the insurance business way back in 1981 was a heme oncologist. And he told me something to your point that, that I've never forgotten. He said, doctors will get off their pedestals when patients get off their knees. So let's explore that whole world a little bit. And let's talk about the role, because you spend a lot of time talking about this in the book. Let's talk a little bit about the, the critical role of education and communication around these plans and these spending accounts. Where does it start? Does it start at the C-suite? Does it start at the employees? Is it simultaneous? And does it have a beginning and an end point, or is it something that has to be continual? So it absolutely has to start at the C-suite. It has to start right from the top in a belief that it is the right solution for that employer group and for those employees. Once you have buy-in at the top, then that message gets communicated right through the company, and it also resonates from top to bottom. And the whole concept of being able to embrace consumerism our whole get, our whole purpose is creating healthcare confidence, having allowing the consumers to have more confidence in their healthcare choices and decisions for healthcare services. Now, there's always a tagline I've used that leadership's lonely, and what I mean by that is the leader has to set the pace, even when everyone else around him or her doesn't understand why they're doing what they're doing. So, the short answer to your question is: very first place it has to start is in the C-suite or in the leadership team of any organization. Without that. The employees, the rank and file, look at the leaders and say, well, if the leaders are not doing it, that must not be that important. So leadership absolutely is critical. The second thing I would say is when you launch a plan like this is to get a cross-section of employees involved from all different levels of the company, not only senior level folks, but, but lower level folks and everywhere in between. From the very beginning. From the very beginning. And the idea here is that you'll create levels of buy-in. If you include people in the decision-making process, not to say that those employees at the lower levels are going to decide we're doing CDH or not, but they can certainly weigh in on how the plan is rolled out, how tools and resources are introduced to their colleagues. Do you find when you do that, that it helps with buy-in down the road as you start rolling out the plans? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. We have to have champions and advocates in it, all cross-sections of employees to make it successful for and, that company. And that's something we don't talk about enough, but, but we really need to. We need to bring all those folks in. All the Be stakeholders. That's right, because then, then you create raving fans, or as our friend Peter Shankman calls them, zombie loyalists Correct. at all different levels of the organization. So let's go back. We've touched on a couple of these, but I want to delve into them because, again, you spend a, a significant amount of the book talking about these three core principles that guide this. And let's take them one at a time. One that I know is your personal favorite is transparency. So let's talk a little bit about transparency and why it's the linchpin of all the other things that you talk about in the book. 
a short, very succinctly put, and Jennifer already gave the quote, health insurance is expensive because healthcare is expensive. People direct their energy and their fervor towards the health insurance company and suggest that that's where the problem lies. I'm not going to sit here and give a pass to the insurance companies because they are part of the four-making rule-making body that I talked about before. That being said, the reality is when health insurance costs go up, it's because health care costs are going up. Most people outside of our industry don't know that healthcare has this thing called healthcare trend. You and I would know it know of it as inflation in the ordinary marketplace or CPI, consumer price index. In healthcare, we have our own separate inflation factor that rises three, four, sometimes five times as high as the overall CPI. So why is transparency important? None of us understand why trend is three, four, five times higher. If I break trend down into its components, its unit cost is about 50%, how much a particular procedure or test or service costs. 35% is utilization, how many times somebody's using that particular service. And then finally, 15% is provider mix, who are you going to see the care, seeking the care from. The re- if we cannot see the cost of the care, you'll buy a $4,000 MRI when you could have bought a $500 MRI, the exact same test. You'll buy a drug for $32,000 instead of for $1,200 because you have no visual evidence of what that service actually cost or the quality of it. So when you really look at transparency, it's not all that unfamiliar a term because it's in every other area of our life except for healthcare. In our minds, transparency is the foundational building block to create real reform in our healthcare system and CDHP enables the creation of that transparency through that lower premium, higher deductible plan fastened with a healthcare account. It's interesting that healthcare is one of the only places where you don't spend time shopping and looking for the best deal or the best quality. If you're looking to buy a TV, most likely you're going to go on Amazon and look at consumer reports and look at what others had to say about various brands, makes and models, but you don't do that for an MRI. If the physician says to you, you need to have an MRI and you're going to go to this specific hospital, You're not going to challenge the physician, but that MRI in a 20 mile radius could, the cost could be 400% different for the exact same MRI, same quality. And that's really where the second level of our responsibility comes into play, that the consumer has to take some responsibility in identifying where the best places to get care and not necessarily overpaying for that care. And it, it just takes a little extra time. And, and it is the craziest thing that healthcare is a place where people don't spend any time shopping for the right resource. If you cannot see it, you cannot measure it. And if you cannot measure it, you cannot improve it. That's the short answer for transparency. Work for Peter Drucker. It works for this too. It's a, it's a great place to, to hang your hat. The third thing that you guys talk about is opportunity. What does opportunity mean in the context of the three guiding principles? So if you look at opportunity, it emanates from the first two principles. Transparency gives you the ability to see what something costs and the quality associated with that product or service you're purchasing. Responsibility, it asks you to be responsible about the way you're living your life and also about the way you're accessing healthcare. So live a healthy lifestyle and also be reasonable and thoughtful about accessing the healthcare system. Opportunity flows from that second principle of responsibility that says, David, if you behave in a responsible way the way you live your life, from a lifestyle perspective, you'll actually be healthier. 
And did you know that if you actually get engaged in the way you purchase your healthcare, you'll actually spend less? So that third element or that third principle of opportunity emanates from responsibility that you'll feel better and you'll spend less because you're acting in a responsible way. You talk a lot about creating a climate of health and well-being. A lot of people are familiar with the term wellness, but wellness is a different thing than well-being. How do they differ, and why is one kind of version 1.0 and the other is version 2.0? So wellness is really a linear type thought process. It has you performing through or processing through gates, through steps, and it's really focused on the physical well-being of an individual, but it doesn't really address the whole person. Well-being really focuses on five core elements. There's physical, there's financial, there's workplace, there's community, and there's mind and spirit. And it's those five elements that make up the whole person and create a holistic of you to actually creating a culture of health and well-being within your organization that transcends just physical wellness. It has to do with you as an entire individual. So Jennifer, the thought process is that the whole human being comes to work every day. And so you need to deal with all of the elements that make up that whole human being's life. Absolutely. Wellness is really when people hear the word wellness, they hear physical fitness, they hear we are a Fitbit go out and walk an extra uh, steps to get to the office. But as Mark shared, the five principles of health and well-being, look at the total person, getting them involved in community, whether they personally want to engage with some financial planning, that there are so many pieces to an individual that it's just to be totally healthy, you have to hit upon all of these five areas. So if we look at the elements, right, physical really is about, do you have enough energy to perform the tasks that are being asked of you as a human being every day, right? Financially, are you able to put a plan together that helps you achieve your goals and objectives short, mid, and long term? Workplace is, are you creating an opportunity inside the environment to uh, grow as a human being, to develop professionally, and have be connected to the work that you're actually doing? A community is about giving back to the communities that you serve, and it's about living an attitude of gratitude. And mind and spirit really is about giving you opportunity to be balanced, to be reflective, and to be mindful about where you are in a day-in and day-out basis. And now, a word from our sponsor. Today, you're being pulled in multiple directions. Employers want you to deliver a higher level of service and employee satisfaction, and you want more time to grow your business. How do you do both? Benazon Healthcare Advocacy is the answer. Benazon helps plan members understand, utilize, and maximize their health plan and answers their benefits questions while you improve productivity, increase client retention, and grow your book. The best part about partnering with Benazon is that your agency gets all the credit. Clients see your logo, while the Benazon team of subject matter experts work to ensure resolution to specific member information and service requests. Each agency gets a dedicated telephone number and year-round, 24-7 customer support that answers the phone with your agency name. Turn your benefit on with Benazon. For more information, go to www.benazon.com or click their logo on the Shift Shapers website. Benazon. Healthcare as it should be. Now, back to our interview. So this brings us to a broader question, which is, as an industry, as practitioners, do we need to create a a better member-level experience than what the members have had? And how much of that is on us? How much of that is on our carrier partners? Who plays what roles in that? 
The short answer is yes. We've made the healthcare system way too complicated Absolutely. for people and unnecessarily so. It's interesting as we're out there talking all over the country, people say to us all the time, and I hear it in the news all the time, it's so complicated, we can't fix it. And my response is, it's a bit glib, but I'll give it to you anyway. If we can fly a rocket to Mars, land a rover on the planet, drive that rover remote control from Cape Canaveral, Florida, I think we can solve healthcare. The reality is the rulemaking bodies we talked about before don't want it to change. This is my own personal belief. No matter how much they say publicly that they'd like it to change, I can find no reason, no understanding about why you wouldn't share what the cost or quality of a service is before it's bought. The only reason I can come up with is that by sharing it, you're putting yourselves in financial harm's way. That's not serving the greater good. So the short answer to your question is we've made it too complicated. But we've also made it too complicated because the folks that designed it did it so on purpose. It's interesting if you go to the physician's office and you ask just the person at the front desk what the cost is for the visit that you're going to have, they absolutely cannot answer that question. And they can't even get back to you within a 24-hour time period because they just don't have access. It's very fragmented. Using the healthcare system is fragmented in the fact that you are seeing a physician, they're referring you to a lab, they're sending you to a hospital for some more testing, you may have some scans, and they're all individually billed without any knowledge of one versus the other and what the total cost is. So it's very difficult for the consumer to really understand what their financial responsibility is. And with the change now and the shift to consumer-driven health plans, People are now asking the questions because they have more responsibility and more out-of-pocket costs. It's funny. It's actually kind of a running joke now. When I walk in for my annual physical every year with my doctor, I ask the front office every year, how much is today's service going to cost me? And they look at me and he looks at me. He's, Mark, you know we don't know the answer to that question. And I'm like, but doctor, you should know the answer to that question because if somebody were to walk in my office today and say, Mark, how much is this consultation going to cost? I would tell them exactly what it's going to cost. Then they would say, what's the quality of that? I'm like, well, I could tell you what I think the quality is, but I'm going to give you 10 references, 5, 10, however many you'd like to actually verify the quality I'm sharing with you is actually the quality of the, of the consultation you're going to receive. Why does healthcare have to be any different? Well, so we've got individuals who have consumer-directed plans. We have spending accounts, and that's great, but we also have employers, and the majority of folks still get their insurance through their employer and this poor employer is sitting there completely in the dark. They have no transparency on their side of the equation either. Is that the reason why there's been kind of an uptick, especially in the small to mid-sized to large mid-sized markets, in interest in partially self-funded plans, which some people call self-funded plans? We know there's a difference, but is that what you attribute that to? Yeah, I think people are looking, organizations are looking for a more efficient way to finance their healthcare. Today, most smaller employers below 500 lives use a financing mechanism called fully insured financing, where they present themselves to an insurance carrier, the insurance carrier provides them with a rate, and they have that rate for 12 months, and they settle up and have a renewal. That's not so unusual. What's unusual is that they don't get any data on what they're buying, so they have no idea what they're paying for. And then when they're asked to pay an increase in that cost, they're not told why. They need to pay an increase in the cost. So employers are frustrated, especially in that 50 to 500 marketplace, because they don't have control and they don't have any data to make a decision. So that's the real impetus behind the notion of moving to a partially self-funded contract. Partially self-funded is different than fully self-funded. Obviously, fully self-funded, the employer is taking the risk entirely 
of all the claims that their employees and their family members are, are generating. Partial self-insurance allows them to use something that carriers already use. Carriers already use this thing called a pool charge and a pool, a pool point rather than a pooling charge inside their fully insured construct. Partial self-insurance allows the same thing through specific reinsurance and aggregate reinsurance. We just, they don't single it out when they're talking to you about how the construct works. What partial self-funding allows a middle market employer to do is to squeeze efficiency out of the way they're purchasing and to not pay the inflated trend numbers that the carriers provided or the pockets of profit that carriers build into their calculations. It also gives the employers the opportunity to get a better understanding of where their claims are actually happening, what, what's going on with their population. So having control over the data allows them to maybe uh, encourage a change in behavior with maybe some programs that will help their employees be in a much better financial and health situation. But there's been a mindset for years among benefits professionals that smaller or mid-sized companies aren't large enough to be fully credible, and there really isn't a, a convenient way short of a, a level-funded plan or some kind of a MIWA, which is almost a, a dinosaur at this point, for them to come together, especially firms under 50, under PACA, what do they do? How, how can a firm that's that size approach a partially self-funded plan in some meaningful way? So we had the same problem with uh, our clients four years ago and then found this very elegant financing structure called a captive insurance arrangement. And a captive insurance arrangement leverages the power of partially self-insured. But when a client purchases or moves into the partially self-insured environment on their own, and let's say there are 100 employees, as you rightfully pointed out, their claims experience is not credible if they even have any experience available. So what does that mean? That means that the stop-loss underwriters are going to be inherently conservative in the proposal that they provide back for their stop-loss coverage. What a captive allows a middle market employer to do is to be self-insured and go through the process we just discussed, but it also allows them to share risk with other like-minded organizations in that construct. Now, that doesn't sound so unusual because that sounds like a MIWA that you were referring to before. What's unusual is the way that captive looks at claim experience for any one group. It separates their claim experience into three buckets. The first bucket is what claims are, are highly predictable from one year to the next. What claims are somewhat predictable but unpredictable and what claims are completely unpredictable. In the area that's highly predictable, that's where an employer should take the risk because there's a high degree of influence they can have in plan design over what employees do with regard to purchasing health. What kind of claims are those? So those are claims like aches and pains, lumps and bumps, minor broken bones. Think of things under $50,000 a year. Routine pregnancies, uh, minor arthroscopic surgery, things that are somewhat predictable. Okay. Prescription drugs could be another example. There's a high degree of price variation between those services, some of which we've already talked about, MRIs, lab, labs, x-rays, that type of thing. But also with regard to prescription drugs, there's a huge variation in cost of, of prescription drugs too. So there's a lot of areas where unit cost, there's a huge variation in unit cost. So in that area that's completely predictable, that's an area where an employer would want to take or should take. It's where carriers make four to six times more profit in that area because underwriters, they can't tell you who is going to claim, but they can tell you the number of incidences that might occur within a particular group. The shared layer, the captive layer, is where volatility occurs. So think of claims above 50000 but below $300,000. This is an area where when underwriters are looking at you from a self-insured perspective, they're going to be more conservative in their underwriting because they don't know how many 100 life groups will generate X number of large claimants or larger claimants. 
But what the captive layer allows groups to do is to pay premium into a pool that they all share when and if they have a particular claim that exceeds, in this example, 50,000 but below 300,000. And then the last area is any claim above 300,000 that's completely unpredictable. Could be a, a transplant, could be a hemophiliac on $60,000 a month of medication, uh, could be the premature delivery of twins. These are things that would typically bankrupt a plan if they didn't have proper reinsurance in place. So there, while we're on the subject of this, and we've got about five minutes left, while we're on the subject of this, there's two different flavors, if you will, on the captive side. There are captives that are called heterogeneous mm-hmm. and captives that are called homogeneous. What's the difference and what favors one or, over the other? Well, a heterogeneous captive allows for various groups, whether it's manufacturing, school, municipalities, they can all purchase together. A homogeneous captive is when the same industry is purchasing in a captive structure together. We have built a captive called Captivated Health, which is very specifically in a couple of different verticals, but the way we started is within our education space, and it is all independent private schools. So what is unique about a homogeneous captive, which is what our preference is, is that they're all speaking the same languages. They have similar challenges. They have the same type of employees because they are educational institutions. So they have their own language that's very different and unique. So we find the success of the captive structure for us is having a homogeneous captive. And we've been very successful in both the education space and in the engineering space. So with the last few minutes that we have left, I want to come back to, it wouldn't be an interview without a political question. You said before that health insurance is expensive because healthcare is expensive. And I asked the question early on, the the actual cost of care, we look at all, as we're doing this interview, all of the the discussion that's going on first in the House, now waiting for the Senate to come forth with whatever they're going to do. Nobody seems to want to touch that third rail, which is the actual cost of care. Why? How do we get them to do the one thing that will actually long-term impact costs at the consumer level? So I used to scratch my head about this all the time, especially given the fact that our governor of Massachusetts is a friend of ours um, and used to be the health plan, a CEO for the number one health plan in this country. And for the longest time, Governor Baker would pound on the drum of transparency. And when he became governor, the drum beat got less loud. And I really didn't understand that because I know how passionate Charlie is personally about transparency until I stepped back from it and said, okay, what's changed? What's changed is that Charlie's now a governor of a state. He's not a health plan CEO. So his objectives are are a little different. And here's what I've come to appreciate. By the way, this has not been um, supported by Charlie. He has not responded to my inquiry when I've made one. We are friends, but I just don't think he wants to touch this. So I'll just put that on on the table. My perspective on this is that if you look at any state, The largest employer in any state is the state government. The second largest employer of any state is healthcare, in particular, large hospital systems, large physician systems, big pharma, whatever they might be. So I'm going to answer the question this way. We are foolish if we're asking the fox to guard the hen house and expecting that when we leave for a day or two, that we come back and the hens are no longer there. Can we blame the fox for doing what the fox is inherently programmed to do? The fox is a carnivore. He needs to eat or she needs to eat, depending on whether it's a male or female fox. At the end of the day, to ask the people who designed the construct to change the construct in a way that's going to benefit the people who have to use it rather than the people who are running it, I think is a foolish notion. So why doesn't anybody touch costs? Because the reality is there are a lot of jobs 
hooked for that cost. I argue, okay, Mark, if you're really going to make it transparent, we're going to reduce healthcare spend and jobs are going to be lost, how is that a good thing? My response to that would be it's a good thing because every time we touch an industry and make it more efficient, there are others that spawn off of it. People will find other things to do with regard to their skills and abilities. So this is going to be a consumer-driven revolution. That's what we're trying to help do, yes. We're trying to spread the message and help employers with a practical guide. And by the way, I should say that the governor of our state also endorsed this book. So while I just made a comment that would make you question whether we are actually (laughs) friends, the reality is we are friends. And I think if Charlie were sitting here, he would not have a problem with that comment because it's just the reality of the environment we live in. No, I, I believe that Charlie is all about creating healthcare confidence from a consumer perspective, but not necessarily in the role that he plays now as governor, able to make the changes necessary for the whole system to be changed. That's a great perspective and a great place to end our interview. Mark Gagne, Jennifer Borslow, authors of the second edition of a really terrific book called Ben the Healthcare Trend. Thanks for sharing your expertise with the Shift Shapers audience. Thank you, David. Thank you. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved. 